I appreciate you. And if y'all will, welcome Pastor Bob Yandian. Thank you, Susan. All right. Thank you. You can be seated. Am I on? Okay. Wow. With that introduction, I hope I'm good. Uh, <laughs> but it is great to be here. And I was talking to Jeremy the other day, and he said Sarah was raised in this church, his wife, and so uh, that was a you know, good, good plug for you guys. Then also I've had people come to me saying they drove here just to hear me today. Now I really hope I'm good. So, <laughs> but it is good to be here today to minister God's word to you. She mentioned you know, a life without reproach. I was raised in church. My dad would you know, swap me if I got out of line in church, and God swats me after that when I get out of line. <laughs> And uh, we went through a lawsuit in our church, and my uh, board said the first thing they do is whoever they're suing, they examine everything about them. They pull up my police records and all this kind of stuff. And I said, oh, that's all right. I said, they're not going to find anything. I think the worst thing I ever did was throw spit wads in high school. And uh, that's about the extent of my criminal background. But uh, I hear testimonies all the time of people that came out of drugs, came out of evil backgrounds and things like that. I always say the same thing. Thank God you took them out of that. I'm glad I never had to try it to find out it wasn't good. There's something about just living for God all your life. I mean, I'm not bragging on me. I'm just bragging on the fact that it's been so good. Why change? You know, it's just wonderful. And so if you prayed for your kids not to stray, well, you do your part and trust God for the other part and you'll see it come to pass. So again, it's great to be here with you today. I want to just mention a few things on the table back there. I only mention my favorite ones. I bring a bunch of them. I mention my favorite ones. And one of my most favorite ones is a little $5 book called Let God's Will Find You. And uh, the point of it is, is I meet 50, 60 year old people that still haven't found the will of God for their life. And if you ask them, they'll, tell, well, they'll say, well, I've been to this prophet's meeting, I've been to this meeting and, and had hands laid on me and waited for a prophecy to tell me what I was supposed to do. And I'm simply telling you, you don't have to run around looking for the will of God. You just get busy serving God and God's will will find you. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us about anybody having to run around and find God's will. Moses was tending sheep. David was tending sheep when the will of God came to them. Uh, Gideon was on the threshing floor, just threshing. And in the New Testament, he picked fishermen while they were fishing, while collecting taxes. This has always been God's plan. So just get involved helping people. He looks for busy people. The Bible says when he comes, will he find you doing or sitting down waiting? I've had people in my church say, well, I can't get involved in ushering. I think my, the God, the will, God's will is right around the corner. Well, he's not going to call you unless you help us usher. He looks for people that are doing things. So I know that's a big, deep theological thing. That's why this is, if you take all the word of God and boil it down to how to find the will of God, it's this thick. That's it. You say, what do you mean? It's that, it's just that simple. Just get busy. I was serving God. My, my wife was singing in the choir. She wasn't my wife at the time, singing in the choir. I was singing in the choir. I was helping in Sunday school classes, going to college, and God brought us together. Same thing with marriage. And that's also mentioned here too. Quit running from church to church, looking for Mr. Right, Miss Right, whatever, and just get busy serving God, and God will see the two of you meet together at just the right time. Think about marriage in the Bible. I mean, just one after another, God brought them together, God brought them together, God brought them together. And with my wife and I, God said, she's the one. I said, oh, no, no, yes, and it was. And uh, we've had a great marriage. <laughs> anyway, so that's back there on the table, the grace of healing. Most every book written on healing has been from the aspect of faith, and that's wonderful. But there's more to grace than there is to faith. God did all the hard work, it's up to you to do the simple thing. Faith reaches out with an empty hand and takes from God's full hand. 
whether it's salvation or healing or anything. So I wrote a book on the grace of healing, looking at from the other side, the aspect of God, understanding the end times. I know we've come through some crazy times lately, but end times still exist. The word of God's still true. And you might as well get a good solid foundation in the coming of Jesus Christ, because it's going to happen soon. Look around the world, it's coming very, very soon. You can tell it. And then uh, Theology Simplified. This is a book I teach. I, I teach at Andrew Womack's Bible College. And this is eight different big sounding words with simple definitions. Predestination, reconciliation, sanctification, glorification. Propitiation is one of my favorite. All these have simple definitions. God wouldn't put them in the Bible and then leave them complicated. And so the Bible is so simple we need help to misunderstand it. Okay, we've had a lot of help through the years. But when it comes to propitiation, it just simply means satisfaction. The Rolling Stones sang about it, couldn't get no propitiation. <laughs> I was still a good kid and listened to rock and roll. I know that doesn't go together, but it is. And anyway, propitiation just simply means satisfaction. When Jesus Christ arose from the dead, God said, he, oh, I'm eternally, I'm eternally satisfied. With every sacrifice, he was temporarily appeased. But when Jesus rose from the dead, he said, oh, no more sacrifices. This is what I've been waiting for. And that's why when we get born again, he's eternally propitiated with us, satisfied with us. So all that's out on the table. And I'll be out there to sign the book. Doesn't mean it's worth any more money if I sign the book. So don't put it on eBay hoping for more money. Doesn't work that way. Then you have to wait until I die. Then it's worth something, okay? And I have no plans for that in the days to come. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23 this morning. Luke chapter 23, we're going to take a look at verse 34. While you're finding, is it okay if I tell a joke? Okay, you guys are joke people? Okay, thank you. All right, so there was this, you know, cop, uh, highway patrolman pulled over one of those big dualies, you know, with four doors and, the, you know, big wide tires in the back pickup truck. Pulled him over the side of the road and got out and went up to the window. And, of course, the window was down when he got there. And the driver said, he said, I wasn't speeding. He said, no, I'm not pulling you over because you were speeding. He says, I'm pulling you over because your brake lights are out. Uh, suddenly, the driver burst into tears, started screaming and crying. And the highway patrolman said, what are you doing? He said, I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm only going to give you a warning. Plenty of time to get it fixed. It's probably just a couple of bulbs is all you need. He says, no, you don't understand. If you can see my brake lights, that means that my, that means that my trailer, my kids, and my wife are all gone. <laughs> All right. Luke chapter 23 and verse 34 is Jesus on the cross. And we're going to take up the first statement that Jesus made from the cross. And this morning we're going to talk about prayer. I'm saying this ahead of time because really I mentioned prayer and some people immediately start to snooze. I don't want to hear about prayer. When I think prayer is one of the most overlooked, important, and powerful aspects of the Christian life. And once you discover its power, it's incredible. And in this particular case, I, let me ask you a question. What's some of the first indicators, older people here, like me, what's one of the first indicators you're getting older? Things hurt that didn't hurt before, yes, uh-huh. Anybody else? Eyesight. How about your hands won't work as good as they used to? And they suddenly start looking gnarly. Then they twist like that. You go, come on, get back over there, you know. And it's not that you're sick or anything, it's just that's just old age setting in. And you can't grip like you used to. The other part is your feet. I mean, you can't get up and move like you used to. Oh, you can, but you're a little slower getting there and things like that. Those are some of the two, you know, parts that start to go when you get older. But let me ask you a question. What would life be if you couldn't use your hands and feet at all? Yeah. What if you couldn't use them at all? What in the world would you do? 
Well, we're going to find out what Jesus did. And I want you to take a look with me here at this verse of Scripture. And it says in verse 34 of Luke 23, it says, Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothing, and they threw lots. Then, it says, Jesus said. What does it mean? Well, then means then. Then after all the things he had gone through and now finally ends up on the cross. And he's hanging on the cross there in front of all of them. And the first thing then Jesus said, that's because after all of his life, Satan and people had tried to kill him. Satan knew he was going to the cross. It's written in, in Psalm 22, an entire chapter on it. It's written in Isaiah 53. And he tried all those years to kill him before he got to the cross. If he could kill him before he got to the cross, there would be no redemption. If he could just undo the plan of God in the smallest way. And yet Jesus couldn't be killed. Men tried to kill him. And he went to his own, the day he introduced his public ministry, he went into his own hometown and preached there. And the people tried to kill him when he left. They tried to push this kid that probably made the rocking chair they had been using every day. The one that helped build some kind of, you know, uh, bookshelves or something in the house. Jesus had done all those things growing up. And now he came back and as his custom was, he read the word of God on a Sunday, but never, Saturday, never did he ever say this verse is fulfilled today in your ears and it was a scripture about Messiah they got so angry at him said oh isn't it the kid that we raised around isn't this the kid that's been here all the time and they tried to push him off a cliff and kill him you know why they couldn't kill him I'm going to tell you something else God couldn't kill him think about that for just a moment there was a lady in our church Sue Tibbs Great woman. We'd known her, actually from the time my wife and I got married, met each other, she was in the choir with us at Sheridan Assembly in Tulsa. And so she joined our church when I became pastor, one of the most faithful people there. And in her 70s, she decided she was going to run for state senate in Oklahoma. I said, why? She said, well, my husband's gone. Nothing to do. I think I just want to get involved in politics. I said, okay, how are you going to do this? You have no money. She said, I'm going to go door to door in my whole district. And for days and days and days, she went door to door. And she won, hands down, won. Very conservative, Republican, went to Oklahoma City, and there she was serving there strongly, you know. And she called me one day and said, I want you to come because they're going to have a, they're going to have a big conference here and a big debate, and there are lots of people coming in debating capital punishment. Would you come and tell the biblical view of capital punishment? I said, okay, will there be a whole lot of people? No, it's a small group of people. She lied to me. She lied. That place seats about 1,500, balcony, a floor floor and everything. I got there and there were people screaming and yelling and waving big signs about don't kill people and all this kind of stuff. And I was looking around at her and I finally glanced over her and she just grinned at me. And I thought, you, you tricked me into coming here. And so anyway, it took forever to calm the crowd down so that I could speak. And they said, we're having a pastor come up. He's going to talk about what the Bible has to say about capital punishment. By the time I got up there to the podium, a man stood up in the back and yelled at me, how dare you serve a God that murdered his own son? And my lightning fast brain thought, I've never heard that before. <laughs> the next part was, God help. I need some help with this. And all of a sudden, God gave me some points from the Bible. Man, I was thinking while I was talking about it, I thought, I've got to write these down. This would make a great sermon. <laughs> I got it right there from the Holy Spirit. I said, sir, 
God did not murder his own son. Jesus said, I pick up my life when I want to. I lay it down when I want to. And on the cross, he said, Father, into your hands, I dismiss my spirit. And he gave up his spirit. I said, God didn't kill his son. Jesus died of his own free will. And because he died of his own free will, God took the sins of everybody here, past, present, and future, laid them on Jesus, and he died so that all you have to do is receive him. I said, every head bowed and every eye closed. 1,200 people bowed their head right there in that place. And there I gave an invitation for Jesus. And I know we had some people get saved. They came and told me later, but I plan on getting to heaven someday and find some tree huggers up there that loved Jesus and gave their life to him in the middle of that thing. That's good preaching, Bob. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. So again, what happened here was they tried to kill Jesus before, but he, they couldn't kill him. He'd walk right out of the midst of them. He couldn't die until he got to the cross and then chose the time to die. He had to make sure he was bearing the sins of the world, make sure his father turned his back on him, make sure that all the sins and sicknesses and all the diseases of everybody that's ever lived was poured out on him. And then he died on the cross and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But what was his first statement on the cross? We're going to find it in this verse of Scripture. Jesus finally said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. And they divided his closing in three lots. Then, then after 33 years, there was no room in the inn. Herod tried to find him and kill him. The religious leaders tried to lay an ambush and discredit him. His hometown tried to push him over a cliff. Then, an illegal arrest, mock trial, Beating and thorns, the people still cried, crucify him after legal leaders found no fault in him. At this time, Jesus said nothing. Then, then when? Then when nails were driven into him, the cross was now dropped in the place. He could no longer walk in his hands and he could no longer lay hands on the sick. Why? Because his hands and his feet were nailed. What would you do if you couldn't use your hands or your feet? All they could do was stand there and say, we finally got him. And Satan's laughing, we finally got him. He can't walk to any town and he can't lay hands on anybody. He's stuck on the cross. There's no way he could fulfill God's plan. So they stood there and mocked and listened. And one turned to the other and said, what did he say? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And Satan went, oh my God, I forgot about prayer. Prayer doesn't need hands. Prayer doesn't need feet. Prayer can go anywhere. It's not bound by time. It's not bound by distance. Jesus even had this prayer answered after he died. We're told in the heroes of faith of Hebrews chapter 11, these all died in faith, not seeing the finished result. They had prayers that went on. And this prayer of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, is still being answered today. Prayer doesn't know any time. Prayer doesn't need your hands or feet. It doesn't need anything except it needs faith from your heart. And the moment you speak it, bam, it can be halfway around the world in a split second. There was one Sunday I was preaching. And, an, and one, of the, one of the ushers came up and said, sir, sir. And I said, what? He said, I hate to interrupt you, but we got an emergency phone call from one of our missionaries. And he named the, the country. I think it was Thailand at the time. And said, said we got a call from him his wife is drastically ill and there's no hospitals in the area he had to run to find a phone to call us and let us know and he wants us to pray for her said we will 
And so I stopped the whole sermon, had everybody stand up, and we gave her name, and we all prayed for her right there at that point. We all sat down and finished the sermon. And the usher came back at the end of the sermon and told us he got a phone call from him. She was totally healed. No hands, no feet, just prayer. And we asked him what time. He said he marked down what time it was because he knew we were praying. Came back and found that phone and let us know. And the time that was there was the exact time it was here when we prayed for her and she was healed. You sometimes forget the power of prayer. And sadly, we don't even stop to think about prayer. Usually till we're so old, our hands don't work like they used to. Our feet don't work like they used to. We keep thinking, I could have had prayer all this time. Jesus began his public ministry with prayer. There were days he took off for hours to go pray. Before he was crucified, he spent almost an entire night praying in the garden. Before he ever got to the cross, he knew the power of prayer. Does God want us to lay hands on the sick? Yes. Does God still want us to travel and and do these things? Yes. But there comes a time he might say to you today that he wants us to go and lay hands on somebody, but the point of it is we can't do it. But we can lay hands on in prayer. We can pray for them, and we can see the power of God begin to work. You know, you have your children, they're at the house, and one of the most important things you can do, especially when you see them going wild or not following after God, bring them up in prayer and tell them you're bringing them up in prayer. Because I can tell you this, I've seen people in our church join the church, and they'll tell me, oh, if mom could just see that she's in heaven, she never thought I'd be worth anything, but she prayed for me and prayed for me. She prayed for me. I'd come home at night, she'd be praying for me. Smith Wigglesworth talked about that. His wife prayed for him. He'd come home and find her at the bed, kneeling down, praying for her infidel husband who was out there living his wild life and everything. He hated that on her. And then one day he realized and he accepted Jesus as Lord and became one of the most leading evangelists the world has ever seen. And he credits his wife with it, who never laid a hand on him, though she'd probably like to. Not in faith, but you know, she'd probably like to. But he looks back on that and credits her prayers that caught, brought him in. So again, we have these things. Again, Satan and man could only stand, watch, and listen. But then Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Jesus' first statement on the cross was a prayer. Jesus had reached his physical limits, but he had not reached his spiritual limits. Do you realize this? Your spiritual limits aren't bound to your health not bound to your you know, dexterity, whatever it is. That comes back to this, and that is the fact you can lift up the needs of others. It reaches beyond our voice. It reaches beyond our hands and feet. It reaches beyond the boundaries where we live and travel. It's not bound by our need to be present somewhere. Prayer is not bound to time. It even works after our death. And again, I quoted the scripture in Hebrews eleven thirty nine. These all having obtained a good report through faith did not receive the promise. And yet we saw many of the things they believed for coming to pass after they were gone. And here's some more things. Those people that prayed for this is, includes Abraham, Sarah, the leaders of the Old Testament. And many of them prayed prayers and they saw through their prayer life some prayers answered. But listen, some of their prayers were for today, the day we're living in, still have not been answered, but God never forgets a prayer. I don't care how many hundreds or thousands of years pass in the meantime. Understand this, prayer can go where your hands or feet cannot go. So, Jesus began his public ministry with prayer. That's in Luke chapter 3 and verse 21. At the very opening of his ministry, he went off to pray. He used the power of prayer throughout his ministry, and here on the cross ended his ministry with prayer. And the night before in the Garden of Eden, he prayed for long hours, and then finally went to the cross. In his last hours, Jesus prayed for others. Jesus prayed for sinners. 
No one is beyond the reach of prayer. Isaiah 53 and verse 12 says, He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. I'll be talking to you this morning a lot about this, tying to prayer into witnessing. That oftentimes we think we have to be there to talk to people and minister to them, but you don't know the power of prayer. Brother uh, Duncan, who was my Bible school teacher, was the pastor for Smith Wigglesworth. He came from England, talked about Smith attending his church. Smith would come to church and tell stories about what happened. Then he would travel with Smith and see some of these things happen. But again, Smith commended his wife for how that, how that happened to him and how that he was born again. But it came back to this. We're going to find out the main reason God's given you prayer is to fulfill the Great Commission. Because you can't go everywhere and be every place. But even when you are long longer in a condition where you can just travel anywhere, you can still pray for people. And again, as Smith pointed out, it was the prayers of his wife that won him to the Lord. John chapter 17 and verse 20 says this, Jesus in his prayer in the garden before he was taken and, and arrested and then crucified a day later, he says, neither do I pray for these, that's the apostles that were with him alone, but for those who will believe. Then he goes on to say what in that verse of scripture, basically what he's in doing was that was including us. When he said, I not only pray for those who are with me, that's the apostles, I pray for those that they're going to speak to. That's even brought out to us at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, that those who were with him have brought this to us, and now I'm bringing it to others. The very gospel we preached was also birthed on the back of Jesus' prayers, especially before he went to the cross where he prayed for us to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25, Jesus still prays in heaven. Look how quiet it gets. Hebrews 7, 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for them. We often think that his intercession is all for us. No, it is for us, but the main thing he's praying for in heaven is what he started in the garden. He started praying for people to be saved through the people that followed him. And that's how the gospel has always been spread. Someone finds Jesus and go and bring it to somebody else, and they receive Jesus and give it to somebody else. One of the strongest things I've seen in the Word of God, and I got that from Rick Renner, was family evangelism. How that throughout the Word of God, one got saved and then the family got saved. Andrew got saved, then Peter got saved. And we find it all tangled up together throughout the New Testament. The brothers and sisters of Jesus, the physical brothers and sisters, not the real brothers and sisters, but of course those that came through Mary and Joseph, all accepted Jesus and found places of ministry throughout the New Testament and into the far distant parts of the world. They accepted the Lord and family evangelism is so important that you realize once you get Get a, a person born again in a family, it's easier to get the rest of them born again. Once you get the power of God through one person, someone else can start to receive Jesus. My mom on her deathbed, we were talking to her, and she kept praying, Bob, would you pray for me that I'll just die? I'm so old, I just want to die. And I said, Mom, I don't even know how to form that prayer. I've never prayed for somebody to die. You know? And she said, Well, I wish you would. Even my, my sister was right there, and she said, as my sister was there, she said, Mom, why don't you pray and we'll agree with you? I thought, hallelujah. Somebody came up with a great answer. And my mom said, okay. And my mom said, God, Father, thank you for saving me. I was the first one in my family that was saved. 
And Sam, my husband, who's already in heaven, was the first one in his family that were saved. And my family kept going this direction. A few of them got saved, and a few got saved in his family, but we're the ones that just followed you. Now my son's in the ministry. My daughter is faithful to church. Then their kids, one is going to be a minister, one's in praise and worship. She started naming them of her grandchildren, then her great-grandchildren, how they're all following the Lord. And she said, I think my worth is done. I'd like to go to be with you. And a week later, she died and went to be with the Lord. But she saw their work was done. She saw all those that were saved because they accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. I went to speak at a church one time. The pastor came to me and said, you know how I was saved? I said, no. He said, my mom led me to the Lord. I said, that's wonderful. He said, you know how my mom came to be with the Lord? And I said, no. He said, your dad led my mom to the Lord years ago. I had no idea. I don't think we'll know until we get to heaven all the ramifications that came through us accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But I can tell you this, it didn't start with just evangelism. It started with prayer. With prayer. As I was growing up, I was saved in, in vacation Bible school. I was five years old. My sister was four. I've got a good friend, David Shibley, who is, he was three at the time. David has a big ministry organization in Dallas and uh, it's called Global Advance, and it's just ministries all around the world and evangelism and things like this. Anyway, that week I was saved at five, my sister was saved at four, and David was saved at three. And he says, don't tell me kids can't get saved at three. He said, look, I've got a ministry here. I hope I'm saved. He said, I think I am and uh, with this ministry. But anyway, the wonderful thing of it. And so I look back on that. And so uh, we got saved in that church, attended for a while until my dad took us to uh, Sheridan Church in Tulsa. And then we didn't see much of our pastor's wife because she was the one that knelt with us and led us to the Lord. Didn't hear about her and talk about her much and didn't see her much through the years to come. And then as uh, she, she died, and I heard she was dying. And uh, anyway, she had died and gone on to be with the Lord. And her daughter called us, called me on the phone, said, Bob, I was searching through her room. She was in a nursing home. And I went into one of the drawers and opened it up. There was a box in there and I opened it up. And inside that box was three by five cards of every child that accepted Jesus in church. And she was praying for them every day. She said, your name was in there. And here I was thinking such a hot shot. It was me all the time. No, her prayers were part of it. Not only did, was my name in there, my sister's name was there. David Shibley's name was in there. And Phil Driscoll's name was in there. We went to school together. His dad was a minister, but she prayed for him every day. Every day those cards came out, and she prayed for those names that were in there. And I think about all that. She's going to heaven. Here I didn't even know it till after she was gone. Her prayers were working for me. How many other people have been praying for me? It's the same with you. You have no idea the power of prayer. You think unless I can walk to a house and lay hands on the sick and see them recover, I have no ministry. And God's saying, no, here's one that should be growing in strength throughout your entire life to where one day when you can't quite do everything you used to do, you can still have the power of prayer. And Satan can think, aha, look at that, they're laying in bed. Look at that, they can't get up that well. Look, they can't walk like they used to. And the moment you start praying, he gets the same attitude when Jesus on the cross began to pray, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. He, or Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44. In Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those that despitefully use you. Before he died, Stephen prayed for those that were stoning him. Acts chapter 7 and verse 60, he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. And he fell asleep. It came to this. 
is that when he prayed, he prayed for those that were stoning him. And the next verse says after he died, they turned and handed their, got their coats back from a man named Saul who was standing there holding the coats while he was being, while at that time Stephen was being stoned to death. Well, you know who that man was? Saul of Tarsus, who ended up being the greatest minister of the New Testament, wrote more books and all that. And he stood there, and don't you know, as he stood there, probably just, what a prayer. <laughs> and later on, he saved because of that prayer, a great part of his life. And again, he probably, he never credited Stephen's death in that. He mentioned it sometimes, but again, it came back to it. He's the one that writes so much about prayer in the Word of God. Again, prayer is not bound by time. It works after we die. Did you know that prayer that Jesus prayed on the cross, the first fulfillment of it didn't come until after he died. He prayed for those parting his garments and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In Matthew chapter, or probably Acts, in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 54, now when the centurion and those with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that happened, that's the darkness, the veil being torn, the graves coming open, even people rising up out of the graves at the resurrection of Jesus feared greatly saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Look at that. His prayer was answered, but after he died, he was already dead and this prayer was still alive and working in those that were around him. Then Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost began to fulfill John 17, 20. John 17, 20 is where Jesus prayed for not only those that were with him, the disciples, but also those that would be saved by them in the earth after that, including those that would be saved by them and those that saved by them. And it keeps coming down to the day we live in today, the spreading of the gospel. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41 says, those who gladly received his word were baptized and the same day they were added to them about 3,000 souls. This is only a small amount of time between the crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus and his ascension into heaven some 40 days and already on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people received Jesus as Savior and Jesus must have just smiled in heaven. His prayer was still working. And who were they led to the Lord by? Peter one of his disciples, it just kept on being answered and being answered and being answered. Turn to Luke chapter 2 for just a moment. How about prayer in you? I want to answer some questions I've seen from people. We talk about church and say, we have way too many old people at church. We need young people. We live in a day. I don't understand why we did this, how it even started. My son took our church and said, Dad, it really bothered me when young people would come up and say, well, what about my generation? And then some others come up, well, how about my generation with kids? Yeah. What about 30-year-old? What about my generation? What about, you know, uh, my generation with wives that work and children and stuff like that? How do you minister to them? He said it got so confusing after a while to where he had to take it to the Lord. He had just taken the church. I stepped down, my son took over. He said he was in prayer and he said just a few seconds into prayer, God just yelled at him, one generation. He said, what do you mean? And God reminded him of the Exodus generation. The Exodus generation left Egypt and it said there were babies on their mother's breast all the way up to over 100 years old coming out and not a feeble one among them. They were all ages in between. You know what, what our generation is? It's everybody that's alive right now. 
and quit trying to focus your ministry on one generation. Preach to whoever's standing in front of you and bless God. Minister to anybody that walks through the door and understand something. Jesus died for them no matter what their age is, no matter what their demographics are. We try to split it down the middle in all, all different ways. That's Satan trying to split us apart. It comes back to this. Revivals bring everybody in. Now, why am I saying that? It's because in Luke chapter 2, verse 36 and verse 37, there was Anna, a prophetess, daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old and lived in with her husband for seven years after her virginity, and she was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers day and night. A good church has many old people who would just as soon live there. I'm going to say that again. The older you get, you've seen it all, you've been there, you've done it all, and you don't want to see, do, or go any other place. You'd just soon go to heaven. Why? Because it's your halfway house between here and heaven. I've got old people, you've got to shoo them out the door after church because they just love coming to church. They're there early. They'll help do anything. They'll do four or five things at a time. And I've got young people that won't do anything because they don't like the old people. And oftentimes the old people don't like the young people. And the old people are trying to get rid of the young people. The young people are trying to get all rid of the old people. We need each other. That's right. We need each other. Right. Young people, we need your zeal and your enthusiasm. Yeah. You need our wisdom and our money. Because by the time you're up where we are, we're looking for good places in the kingdom to sow it into. We realize something. I've saved it for all these other things, but they're temporary. The greatest thing I can do is give in the kingdom of God. And now I've reached a point where I can give more and more and more. We need each other in the church doing this with each other. Young people, again, you have the zeal. You have the vision. Thank God for it. You have the energy. Thank God for that. The old have the wisdom, counsel, prayer, and money. But look at what David said. I once was young. I hate that word once. I can't go back and revisit it. I once was young. Now I'm old. But I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. I want you to understand that. David said I've never what? Say that word out loud. I want you to notice he didn't say taught. I've never seen. The older you get, the less doctrine you give to people. You just start telling stories. I was around Brother Hagin. I couldn't believe the older he got. Just story after story. I'd ask him a biblical question. He said, well, in 1934. <laughs> and he started telling a story. And you go, wait, I asked you a biblical question. If you hang on long enough, his story is going to explain it. Because there comes a time you don't have to preach it. You live it. And all of a sudden what you live becomes a great testimony to others. So when you need something good, don't just go to all the old people expecting them to tell you what a verse means. They'll probably start telling you about their husband, their wife, meeting someone, their children. They'll tell you about their friends. They'll tell you about the church they were, seeing somebody raised from the dead when they were under a tremendous financial attack and God came through supernaturally. That's what you want to hear because the Bible tells you what God will do. The older people are actually living testimonies in front of you that he never, ever fails. It's good stuff. Amen. So it simply comes back to this. Never underestimate the power of prayer. And we do that. Oh, I pray. Oh, anybody can do that. I want to I go over there. I want to do these things. Well, thank God you can. But you need to start developing a prayer ministry long before that to where you have to do it then. You need to start doing when you learn prayer. 
and take the things you learn and begin to apply it in prayer and begin to pray for other people. So again, don't underestimate the importance and the power of prayer. I stopped to think about this. There's times I've walked away from a sermon going, eh, it wasn't very good. And my wife confirmed it. It wasn't very good. <laughs> and she'll say, you were just weren't all, hitting on all eight today. I said, I know, I tried and all this, but the point of it is, here's the point. Uh, and there's other ministers I know this. I love to take the Bible and just explain it. Pull apart the Greek and pull apart this and that and just explain it, what's there in front of me. And that takes a lot of study. Then takes notes when you come up here. I mean, I know ministers who hardly ever look at their notes. You know, they just kind of freewheel through the whole thing. But I demand some notes in front of me, and so that's why I use notes. And I have often thought about this as I look back on it. Some of my biggest mistakes was not a matter of too, uh, too much study. My mistake was not enough prayer. Because what makes the Word come alive is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't come through study. It comes from time spent with Him. And so I've had, I mean, I've learned to develop a prayer ministry through this whole thing because when I walk up to preach, I think, what about that note? What about that note? There's been times I've prayed and know I hit a home run. It wasn't me. It was the Holy Spirit bringing things to me because I was open to him. Walk out and think and look at my notes and go, I left out that whole section. I didn't even talk about it. That was the most key section of the whole thing. And I left it out and then find out three months later, the Lord will remind you of it because it fit better in that sermon three months later than it fit in this sermon today. The Holy Spirit has no time with him. And he does everything at the right timing. So this again comes back to the importance of it. Look at Acts chapter 1. I'm going to ask you here, what is your highest priority in prayer? What should be the most important thing that you pray for? And why did God give us prayer? And especially being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking with tongues. What is it for, the greatest thing for? Well, it's to hear from God. Yes, I agree, it's to hear from God. But to hear from God what? What's he trying to tell you? What's the main thing God's trying to tell you by being filled with the Holy Spirit? Acts chapter 1, verses 6. I know you've heard these verses before, but let's take a fresh look at them. Verses 6 through 8. When they came together... They ask him saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The Greek word literally means they repeatedly, over and over, hounding him. They wouldn't take the first answer, so they ask again, no, 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 when's the kingdom coming? You've talked about the kingdom, you've now gone to the cross, now you're about to be resurrected into heaven, ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. You told us that, but we want to know when's the kingdom coming? According to Daniel's prophecy, when you went to the cross, we were seven years away from it. Is it going to happen? Tell us now when it's going to happen. When they came together, they repeatedly asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Yeah, I wish you could get that. It took me forever to see that one day. God is not that much interested in us getting so involved in politics. What he's saying in this verse of scripture is those are in God's times. Those are in God's hands. Do I have something to do with it? Yes, I think it's important that I vote. I think it's important I get involved in some things. But it's not going to change the entire world. That's in the Father's hands. In other words, when Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father, God said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He's called the Alpha and the Omega. What Alpha did, we cannot do. 
Go come, come, virgin birth, grow up, signs, wonders, miracles, go to the cross, die for the sins of the world, be in the ground, be resurrected, then, you know, 40 days later, go into heaven and sit down at the right hand of the Father. That's Alpha. But the moment that Alpha sat down, Beta kicked in, and that's us. We are all the letters after that. Beta, Gamma, Delta, Epsilon, all the way down to the letter Psi, and I believe that's where we are today. And when we get to that letter, the next one that's left is Omega. And we could no more do Omega than we could do Alpha. Alpha stood up and then sat down. And one day, Omega's going to rise back up and say, now's my turn. And I can tell you this, you can read the end of the book, and it's not the saints that saved the world. It's Jesus Christ coming back. And I'm only here one time so I can say this. He's going to kick butt. That's right. That's right. And I'm going to stand back and watch because that's exactly what we're going to be doing, coming back with Jesus, watching him do these things. He said, quit being so concerned about governments. Should you get involved? Yes. Should you vote right? Yes. But don't think it's all up to you and then get discouraged after the election and find out we didn't change things that much. The whole world is in a downward spiral. I'm not going to save the world from that, but Jesus is. But I can save individuals along the way and turn them toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What is our mission? Win souls, win souls, win souls. We're so interested in politics, we want to know we can do this or that. Angels do not rejoice in heaven over who gets to be president of the United States, but they rejoice over one person that repents because the president is temporary, but salvation is eternal. And we should be rejoicing over that too. It seems like we're not the one that's out there, you know, pushing to spread the gospel, which we should be. In fact, it's why the Holy Spirit was given. Do you realize this? The Holy Spirit was given to help win souls. The number one thing that Jesus wanted us to do, the number one thing he did, his prayer on the cross, his first prayer on the cross was, Lord, get him saved. His prayer in the garden was for all those who were following him to lead others to Jesus, to lead others to Jesus, to lead others to Jesus. And it all comes back to this. God's purpose in us being here is to reduplicate ourselves. If all he cared about was getting you saved, you get raptured the moment you receive Jesus. But he left you here to win souls, win souls, win souls. The very ministry he had, he's given to us. And he gave us something he didn't have at the time, the fullness of the infilling of the Holy Spirit, including speaking with tongues. And all those things given, even the Holy Spirit and speaking with tongues, the baptism and filling of the Holy Spirit is followed by, by nine gifts of the Spirit. And all nine gifts of the Spirit were primarily given to help win souls. Gifts of healings. We think it's only to come to church and lay hands on sick Christians. And that's wonderful to do. But that's about this much of it. The other this much of it is going to all the world, preach the gospel, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover, cast out devils. He gave us the Holy Spirit to accomplish that. The main purpose of the Holy Spirit, praying with tongues, is to help bring people into the kingdom of God. Supernaturally. You know the number one gift that Jesus used to win souls individually when he ministered to an individual? Word of knowledge. Nathaniel, I saw you sitting under a tree. He said, you must be the son of God. <laughs> and we try to make it so complicated. The woman at the well. 
You've had five husbands. The one you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> what happened to her? She got saved right back into town and brought all the men. Read that verse. Didn't bring the women. She brought all the men to him. Said, come meet a man that told me everything I've ever done. You're probably thinking, everything? <laughs> we better go see this guy. And so she went out there and all these men behind her, they all got saved, went back into town and a revival began that really broke out immensely in Acts chapter 8 in the city of Samaria where this revival broke out in huge things. Again, we find him using the word of knowledge. We ought to get up in the morning and instead of practicing some formula on how to lead people to Jesus, say, Holy Spirit, I'm open to you. When I was in, when I was growing up in high school, I was a, went to Youth for Christ and uh, I'd come back after Saturday night meeting. My, I told my dad, I said, they're having a thing on teaching soul winning. You think that'd be very good? I said, oh yeah, go take it. And it wouldn't hurt to help you find, you know, how to lead people to Jesus better. So when I got there, basically all it was was a memorization thing. They had a sheet of paper and on one side was all the questions that a sinner could ask you and on the other side was all the answers for the questions. So I memorized this side, and I memorized that side, and you know, you'd read it and you'd turn it over and there's the answers on the other side. And I memorized all those things because I wanted to be able to answer the sinners when they asked me questions. You know what they did? They asked me questions that weren't on my sheet. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. And some gave some of the strangest things I didn't know what to do. But you cannot dumbfound the Holy Spirit. That's right. If you're open to him, he'll give you an answer, just like that one I told you about. Jesus, you know, oh, his father, his dad killed him. God killed his son. No, he didn't. And right there, God gave me things from the word of God. Because why? When you're brought before sinners, you're brought before people, don't even think what you're going to say. Trust the Holy Spirit. And that really comes by praying in tongues, praying in tongues, praying in the spirit with one major goal. I want to win somebody to Jesus today. I travel a lot in airplanes. And I, you know, get to get on early because I've been traveling so long on planes. And I sat in my seat one day and they started letting everybody else in and, and a young man sat next to me. And the moment he sat down, the Holy Spirit said to me, he's ready to receive me. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. So, you know, we were just sitting there. So I asked him, you know, I always had this list of questions, you know, that I start with to open the door. One thing I like about witnessing on airplanes, they can't go anywhere. Uh, so he was sitting there next to me and I just said, you know, hi, what, 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 what do you do? He said, I'm a college student. He started naming the college he was in, all that. And I said, oh. And uh, he said, what do you do? See, I always ask him what they do because they'll turn around and ask me what I do. And so I, I you know, and I usually get a different number of looks, you know, when I tell them I was a pastor of a church. And so I said, I pastor a church. He said, you do? What kind of church is it? And I said, well, we're a Bible-believing church. We believe in Jesus. He said, you do? And I said, you're ready to receive Jesus, aren't you? He said, yes. He said, I've had two of my friends try to lead me to Jesus. He says, and, the, and I told them both no. And the, now I can't remember how they said to do it. I woke up this morning and said, God, would you send somebody to tell me how to receive Jesus? And we sat next to each other. Don't think the circumstances of life are just arbitrary. God arranges some of the things that you're in. Other times, just witness to whoever shows up. But there's those divine ones where you pray, God, I want you to open a door. Bring somebody across my path. Because listen to this. It might change your whole theology on this. But witnessing is supernatural, not natural. Witnessing depends on the Holy Spirit that birthed you into the kingdom to lead you to the right people. Jesus practiced it. The disciples practiced it. And there comes time you lay hands on, listen, you don't have to get them saved first. When they're sick, lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. And there's times when Jesus healed all day long and the end result was, it says, and many believed on him. 
They believed on him because of the miracles, not that they had to get saved first before we could get them healed. Let me tell you something, really opened up my eyes one day. Why did Jesus take the bread and say, here, take the bread, then take the cup? Because bread's for everybody, the whole world. Oh, that's good. See? And so, in other words, you can receive healing before you get saved. I know that's, just common, that's a weird thought, but that's what happened in Jesus' ministry. He taught the word sometimes. It says, and many believed on him, but he also healed all day long. And it says, and many believed on him. And many believed on him because of signs and wonders and miracles. The fact that the, all the, you know, those in the upper room came down speaking with tongues caused 3,000 devout Jews out of every nation under heaven to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. So again, we have it there. He said, you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and even to the uttermost parts of the world. One more thing, and that is we are to pray for national leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. We are, in fact, instead of griping and complaining, watching TV and, you know, shouting your opinion at the TV about what's going on in our nation, and then coming to church and shouting your opinion about what's going on. I'd rather hear what's going on in the kingdom of God because our nation will not last forever. There's only one eternal nation on the earth. It's Israel, not the United States. So it comes down to it, you know, not every, all the other nations will be gone one day, but God's kingdom will stand forever and forever. My greatest citizenship is not the fact I was born in Tulsa, have a, you know, a, a United States you know, citizenship paper. That's not the greatest thing I have. The greatest thing I have is the day I got saved, I became a citizen of heaven. Because everything I've got in Tulsa will be gone the day I die. They'll even try to tax my kids for me. I mean, you know. But when I die, the point of it is I go to my, the home that God ordained for me. And I don't become a citizen when I get there. I became a citizen when I accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And that's the kingdom I'm looking for. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2, take a look at verses 1 through 4. I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Then he goes on, and for kings, all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty, or reverence in my translation. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. I'm going to say that again. What should we be praying for kings and authority? What should we be praying for? for our congressmen and senators and those that are up there representing us. Well, I've been praying they'll get voted out. That's not what this verse says to do. Well, I've been praying for her, she'll die. And that's not what this verse says to do. He desires all men, which includes congressmen, senators, and all that number one, to be saved and then come to the full knowledge of the truth. You know what those two things are? The great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel, then go into all the world and make disciples out of those who just received him. This verse says the best people we can have in Washington are not just saved people, but disciples who understand the word of God. Because that way you don't have to keep coming back praying for them over and over again. They've got the right course set and they'll follow that and you can begin to pray for others. All right, let me ask you a question. When's the last time you prayed for Nancy Pelosi to be saved? Thank you. And to come to the full knowledge of the truth. That's impossible. That's what they said about Saul of Tarsus. That's right. That's what many said about you, you stubborn thing. Say, yeah, but I think they're too far gone. No, the day they're too far gone is when they're in their grave. In the meantime, as long as there's a heartbeat and there's breath coming out of them, 
it's not too late to see them saved. So what are we supposed to do? Pray for them. All to be saved and then come to the knowledge. The Greek word here is, there's two words for knowledge. One is natural knowledge and one is revelation knowledge. And this is the word for a higher revelation knowledge. You want them to come to the full knowledge of the truth. Again, the great commission. One more thing. Let me just get to one more verse of scripture. Say we're running out of time. I'm just here one day. I can get in the car and drive off so I can. Look at Colossians chapter 4. One thing you can keep up in prayer is those ministries you support out of this church. Missionaries, ministers. Say, well, I don't have all the money that I wish I could give to them. You can pray for them. Just like that phone call that came to the church and our congregation all lifted up our voice in one accord and his wife was healed, miraculously healed, halfway around the world. I don't know how many miles that was, but it's the point of it is the moment we prayed, she felt the impact all the way around the world. I didn't have to get on a plane. I didn't have to take my body over there. I didn't have to walk to her, to her uh, camp. I didn't have to lay hands on her. All these things that we like to do. And oftentimes prayer gets pushed off the side. Well, no, I just need to get my hands on them. Don't make works out of this thing. You understand something? It's the prayer of faith that saves the sick and the Lord will raise him up. Not the fact that you were physically present there. And Jesus wasn't physically present when the Roman soldier accepted him as Savior. And the other ones that were with him. Colossians chapter 4, look at verse 2. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 through 5. It says, continue earnestly in prayer. This is Paul's admonition and closing admonition to the Colossian congregation. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word. The first thing you should be praying for, for your missionaries and those ministries you support, is open doors whether that takes opening up government doors or whether it takes up opening up city doors or whether it takes village doors. There's doors that need to be opened for them. Pray for those doors to be open. Why? Because the point we're praying for is so they'll come to know Jesus. This is what we're praying for. The number one thing God wants. And he says again in this verse of scripture, that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm also in chains, that I may make it manifest. Here's something else to pray. The word doesn't mean manifest. It means clear, obvious, that when I speak, it will be easily understood. Pray for me that I can make it clear or apparent as I ought to speak. I love this Greek word. It means it's my duty. Pray for me that I can make the gospel clear as my duty is. Not to come and preach incredible revelations of knowledge. Not to come and bring, hey, listen to this doctrine. I mean, there's times when I was growing up, my friends and I would leave from church and we'd walk out and say, did you understand a word? He said, no, it was so deep. Deep mean we didn't know squat what the guy said. We had no idea what he said. And Paul said, I don't want to walk out with people going, wasn't that Paul guy knowledgeable? Didn't he use big words? He said, I want to walk out to where they didn't see me. They saw Jesus clearly, emphatically presented. That's what we should be praying for them for. Again, number one, open doors. Number two, to make it clear as I ought to speak. And finally, number five, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. This all comes under the concept in verse two, prayer. Pray. Walk in wisdom toward those that are outside. These are unbelievers. Redeeming the time. 
Let your speech be always with grace. When you lead them to the Lord, trust the Holy Spirit to make it gracious and then seasoned with the word, seasoned with salt, seasoned with the word, not diluted with the word, not taking scripture, 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 but using a little bit of scripture to sprinkle it on the testimony you're giving because you're not dealing with people that understand the word. They think it's foolishness. But sprinkle just enough word on there. The promises, why? Because the promises have the impact and power, but you don't need to make this a Bible study. Pray for me, Paul says, because if there's anybody that could probably do a great Bible study, it was Paul. He says, listen, when I get around unbelievers, pray for me that I can keep it simple. Pray for me that I can just, again, give uh, that it'll be with grace and season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Again, you don't need to study how to witness. That's what the Holy Spirit was given to you for. Walk out in faith every day, expecting two things to happen. God will bring people to you, or else when you go to people, he'll be there to make it clear in front of them. One of my favorite places just to look for people to minister to is Walmart. You know, they always have those big smiley faces everywhere, but you don't often see that when you walk up to the register because the woman doesn't have a smiliness on her face or all that. She's got probably, why? She's just human. I walked, I walked up to, to the counter there and there was a lady behind there. She just looked like the weight of the world was on her. And so she was checking me out and said, is everything okay in your life? She says, no, my daughter's in the hospital. They don't know what's wrong with her. And she said, I have to come to work because I need the money. I don't want to be here. I just seem to be there. I said, give me your hand. I grabbed her hand. And I prayed. I said, Father, that child is healed in the name of Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing I did that day. Mm. Not where I went, not what kind of car I did this with or what I, you know, guys do. It, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing was I did that. I had to leave. I, I plan on seeing her in heaven one day. Because yeah. that probably shocked her when I just grabbed her hand and said, I'm going to pray for your daughter. Because nobody will do that. It takes a Christian open to the Holy Spirit and realizing this is a point of opportunity. And this may lead her to the Lord, it may not, but you know what? She's going to think about this for a long time. There was, I'll give, finish with one testimony. But I was, when I was pastoring, I was in my car one day and my phone rang. It was one of those old ones. Remember the ones that sat in the center console and you had to pull it up and, you know, pull this thing to your ear? Anyway, it was my secretary calling from the church and she said, there's a lady that called and wants you to pray for a little girl in the hospital. And I said, does this lady go to the church? She said, well, the lady that called me does, but this is a friend of hers. And her daughter, somehow, she said, this is the gist of the story, I think. She said, the daughter went in for some minor, minor surgery, something small, she's four years old. Went in for some minor surgery, something happened, and she went into a coma, and she's been getting worse now for the past four days, and they think she's gonna die. They have her hooked up to all kinds of tubes and stuff and wires attached to her. Would you go pray for her? I said, yeah. And so I went to the hospital and, you know, I didn't, I, this, listen, this is one of those things, I didn't feel exceptionally spiritual that day. Mm. You don't have to feel spiritual. Wow. You know, just be instant in season and out of season. This is definitely one of those out of season times. So I prayed in the spirit before I got to the hospital, still didn't feel a whole lot different when I got to the hospital, walked down the hall and her mother was standing out in the, in the lobby of this floor. And I said, are you Mrs. So-and-so? She said, yes. She said, who are you? And I said, we got a call from a friend of yours recommending that I come pray for your daughter. She said, thank you. And she said, she's in here. So they made me put on all this garment, you know, to go in, put COVID to shame. It wasn't just a mask. I put on this, look like a hazmat suit or something to go into where she was. And I got in there and she was 
laying there in the bed. I mean, there were tubes coming from everywhere, hoses going into her mouth. And she said for four days, she's been getting worse and worse and worse. The doctors don't know how this happened, but they're already expecting her to go. They're already planning on here at the hospital that she's gonna be gone in just a matter of hours probably. And the doctors were standing there and I said, would you guys please leave the room? I thought about when Jesus dismissed all the unbelief out of the room. Yeah. I got rid of all that. The moment they were outside the door, I took off my mask. I took all this, you know, to where I could at least touch the girl with my hands, you know. And the lady said, listen, my, my Baptist pastor came and he wouldn't even come to the room. He just stood out there in the hall and prayed that she'll have a smooth passing on to heaven. I thought four years old and we're praying for a smooth passage. I said, she's not 94, she's four, okay? And so at four years, anyway, I just said, no. And I said, she'll be fine. She said, what? She'd never heard anybody speak faith. She'd never heard anybody speak divine healing. I said, no, ma'am, she's going to be fine. She said, you're kidding. I said, no. So I reached over and took her hand. I said, in the name of Jesus, she sat up in bed, pulled the tubes off and said, mama, I'm hungry. The mother started screaming, <laughs> screamed. The doctors came running in. What's going on? They looked, they saw her sitting in bed. They said, well, maybe we misdiagnosed it. I thought, no, you didn't misdiagnose this. This is the power of God. And I mean, I left the room praising God all the way that God used me. I didn't feel anything when I came there. I didn't feel spiritual or anything, but you don't have to necessarily feel spiritual. Just take God at his word and be obedient to be a doer of the word of God. And from there I left. I didn't hear anything from that lady or that girl for a long time. But I found out later on that they started coming to our church, sat on the back row. She said, I figured if this could happen, I didn't need my Baptist pastor anymore. So she came to our church. She then, you know, and then she took her daughter and put her in victory school in Tulsa. And I mean, she was around the things of the Lord all the time. And then one day I got a call just not that long ago, probably about two years ago. And it was a girl and she said, hi, my name is, and she gave me her name. I said, yes. And she said, I've traced you down to find you. She said, I was that four-year-old girl that was laying there in the bed. I said, hold you right now. She said, 34. And she said, you know, 30 years ago this happened. She said, my mom, until the day I was married, told me this story every single day. There's not a day that went by. She didn't rehearse the whole thing all over again. She said, I know this story inside and out. I said, that's great. And I said, so what are you doing? She said, well, now I have a daughter. She's born again. And she's serving God. Said, we're now attending a church. And said, my husband, she introduced him. Anyway, so she came by to see me, brought her husband and all that. And I'm looking at that thinking, hallelujah. That's so incredible. See the ending of a story. Not just that, but she's now had a child that's born again, a husband that's born again. She's living a productive life and her mom was serving God all these years. But to know that God, God literally arranged for me to be at that place at that time. He didn't put the disease on her. He didn't put any sickness on her, but arranged for the answer to be there, knowing what the problem would be. It's good to know that the things you walk into, God sought long before you got there. Here's the good news. God planned the answer before the problem came along. Amen. I could go on all day long, but you want to see me head out the door. I'm sure you do. But anyway, it's been great to be with you this morning. Thank you for asking me to come.